know we always talk about these old airplanes having souls, but this thing, this thing was crying out for help, and and I could hear it. Go ahead and take your speed up. Your number one now, runway two seven clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications. And with me at a wholly appropriate social (laughs) distance at the other end of a long table, it is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. Terrific. Chris, uh, we're uh, we're joined remotely through the magic of the internet. Why don't you tell us uh, who's uh, sitting in with us today? Absolutely. Thank God for the internet and all these uh, Skype calls and meetings, right? Uh, but uh, today we get to have a little bit of fun. We're going to talk some some uh, versions of the DC-3 and C-47 uh, with Jason Capra, who's the president and founder of Vintage Wings Incorporated. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for coming on this morning. Oh, hey, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm happy to be on the podcast with you guys and uh, be able to talk about our airplane and organization. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, Jason, how did you first get started in aviation? Was there something that really kind of uh, lit the fire for you? Yeah, I'd have to say uh, my grandfather was pretty influential in getting me started in flying. I, I wanted to be a pilot and, and fly airplanes since I can remember. Um, but uh, he was always in aviation and uh, flew himself uh, when he was younger. And uh, none of my uncles or aunts, anybody flew. So aviation kind of skipped a generation. And then uh, when I came along, I was the first grandchild. And I think uh, my grandfather uh, made sure that somebody was going to be a pilot or be in aviation. So I actually had a model of a P-38 Lightning above my crib when I was a baby that he built for me. So. I, I've been staring at Warbirds since I came came into the world. That's uh, that's terrific. Now, was your grandfather in the service, or did he uh, fly professionally? Or was it just something he was interested he was. in? Or? Yeah, he was in the uh, Pennsylvania Air National Guard right after World War II, uh, when the Air Force became its own entity. And then he flew uh, for Allegheny Airlines, which turned into U.S. Air for a while. Oh, very cool. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, just out of curiosity, what did he fly in the Air Guard? Uh, he was on the F-51, and then the P-80, and then the uh, F-84. Oh, how cool is that? Oh, that's awesome. You know, there's that. Uh, there's one survivor from the PA Air Guard. Uh, the NACA P-51 was a, a Pennsylvania Air Guard uh, Mustang. And uh, Oh, I didn't know that was Pennsylvania. I was just looking at that uh, yeah. airplane out in Idaho a few weeks ago. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there was a small group. Uh, when I was at Air Heritage, we went and pulled it down off the pole. It was, on, it, was a, it was a gate guard. Wow. We pulled that airplane down off the, uh, off the pole and put a fiberglass mock-up up there. So, um yeah, that's neat. Yep. We'll, we'll I, uh, I'm I'm almost positive that that I'm almost positive that that F-51 there. Uh, he probably flew back in the 40s or early 50s, and I I'd love to meet that guy one day because I that airplane was with the 147th and 149th there at Pittsburgh. So it would be an honor to to get to see it one day. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Um, you know, so tell us how did you. Tell us how this all began, uh, and I guess first off, because we're going to talk about C-53s, but that's that's a lesser known or, or maybe not as well known version of the of the DC-3 C-47 family. Can you can you kind of tell us what the difference is and why it's a, a different designation? Sure, absolutely. So really, when people always talk about C-47s, they always say, "Oh, it's the military version of a DC-3," which is true. 
but a C-53 is a true DC-3 in camouflage, if you want to look at it that way. So it it never had the big cargo door in the back like the C-47s did. It always retained the small passenger door. It also had the small independent baggage compartment behind the passenger door, like a standard DC-3. And just like a DC-3, uh, it never had reinforced cargo floors. It just had plywood, bulkheads and plywood floors. And uh, it had the less bulk, bulky landing gear. So, again, it was a true DC-3, just pressed in the military service. And predominantly uh, at the beginning of World War II, when we, our country was pressed for material, most of the C-53s were in combat in the early days in World War II, uh, especially in North Africa and out in the uh, Pacific as uh, paratrooping platforms. And uh, it kind of took a back roll as the war went on and more C-47s were produced as VIP transports, hospital ships. And essentially, they were the backbone of the uh, Air Transport Command, which was the transport of uh, supplies and personnel from the fronts back to the United States. Uh, I guess it was the, the military's airline, if you want to look at it that way. Wow, that's that's something I, I'd uh, wondered about a bit over the years and never dug into very deeply. So if I'm looking at a C-47 and a C-53 parked on the ramp side by side, is it that is the cargo door probably the quickest and easiest way to differentiate the two? It most certainly is, yes. that's If you're on a fly looking at them, uh, that's your first big uh, clue that one's a C-53 and not a C-47. The other easiest thing to look at is the propellers. Uh, most of the C-47s have, we call them paddle blade props, which are the thicker, more rounded propellers. And C-53s have the uh, DC-3 pencil props, uh, so they're a lot thinner and a little bit uh, pointier. But between the propellers and the doors, that's the easiest way to tell a C-53 from a C-47. That's uh, that's great. That's good to know. I had been kind of looking for a little uh, a cheat sheet for a while there. Now we're talking about C-53s, of course, because you've got one uh, that uh, that you've been heavily involved in in restoring. Can you uh, uh, let us sit back, put our feet up, and just tell us the story of this particular airplane, and uh, maybe even backtrack a little bit, sort of how you how you came across it, uh, what was the path that led you to it, and then the airplane's history itself. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. So uh, just I've been lucky enough to be involved with uh, another organization in Warbird since I was a teenager, and that was the uh, Berlin Airlift Historical Foundation. Uh, they have the C-54 Spirit of Freedom, which unfortunately was just written off due to a tornado this past winter down in North Carolina. Uh, but I was I was lucky to be involved with that and be around Douglas prop liners and big airplanes on Warbirds since I was a teen, about 14 or 15. So I, I'd been on the air show circuit and I had been flying with Tim on that airplane and working on it. So I really got a really good hands-on experience on working on these things. And uh, I just so happened to be on my way home from ground school for my airline that I fly for um, about five years ago now. I get or No, I'm sorry, six years ago. And uh, I was driving back to Pittsburgh and uh, just got tired of being on the interstate. So I started taking all these back roads, just trying to get lost and seeing what I could find or stumble across. And uh, I ended up coming through this little town in Ohio called Beach City, Ohio, and uh, came around the bend. And there's a grass airstrip sitting there and uh, kind of like a flying community. There's houses with hangars attached to them. 
And then down at the end of the airport where the road parallels the runway, there was uh, about 20 open-air hangars that were in just deplorable shape with airplanes rotting away underneath of them. And right on the other side of that hangar was this DC-3. Just basically, you know, its paint had been oxidized and was turned to powder and there was mold growing on it and just the windows were delaminated and fogged over and the fabric on her flight controls were torn and it was just about the saddest thing I think I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, knowing that that airplane deserved better. And I always joked about, man, I'd love to find one of those barn find warbirds. You know, it's kind of a, a dream for some of us out there that maybe one day you'd be lucky enough to stumble across something like that. And, uh, and, and here's this, this DC three that I know nothing about that clearly hasn't flown in ages. And, uh, I pulled off to the side of the road and walked over and walked around it and just everything about it just broke my heart. And, uh, you could tell, I know we always talk about these old airplanes having souls, but this thing, this thing was crying out for help and, and I could hear it. And, uh, I don't know why, but, uh, right then and there, I just kind of looked at the airplane and I said, don't worry, old girl, I'm going to, I'm going to do something to help you. And, uh, when I left that day, I was on a mission to track down the guy who owned it or whoever owned it. And I was going to try and see if there was something we could do to save it. And that's pretty much how that started. Did you ever think that, you know, you'd you'd actually own something like this? I mean, this is uh, this is pretty uh, significant. Did you ever think you'd actually make it happen? Uh, no, I I always thought I would own a warbird um, and 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 have an organization of some such. But uh, my sights were being set on either a BT thirteen or maybe a T six. Um, something a little bit more manageable and definitely a lot smaller, <laughs> but, uh, it was just one of those things that I, you know, had been working with Tim in the C-54 for so long. And I, I saw how essentially three or four dedicated people could make a four engine Douglas work. And I thought, well, if I could get two or three dedicated people, there's no reason we couldn't make a DC three work. It's half the size. And Tim always said that. You know, in his words, he said, anybody can operate a DC-3 if you have a little bit of knowledge. And he always said, there's hope for you, too, one day. It was a joke. But uh, <laughs> I thought, well, you know what? I, he was right, and here we go. So we're going to give us a shot. So That's awesome. So so what was the next step? How did you go about tracking down the owner? So I actually went on the FAA's website and just typed in the end number. And, uh and sure enough, it came up with the gentleman's name. Uh, his name was Ken Joseph. And uh, so I saw that he lived in the Akron area somewhere. So then I just Googled Ken Joseph, Akron, Ohio. And uh, every Joseph that popped up, I, I just blindly called and asked if they were the individual that owned the DC-3 at the Beach City Airport. So it took me about three weeks to get a hold of him. And I actually got a hold of his son first, and he put me in touch with him. And I just asked if I could come out and talk with him about the airplane and and uh, take a look at it more in depth than I already did. And he agreed to that. And uh, he didn't know uh, anything uh, very much about the history of the airplane prior to it being the uh, – it used to be the governor's airplane of the state of Ohio. Uh, and that was about the end of his knowledge as to what it was and where it was. But uh, obviously I, I saw from the data plate inside when I went in that it was built – 
and accepted on uh, January 1942. So I'm like, well, this thing definitely has some combat history, military history, and nobody seemingly knows what that is. And I, I'm going to have to dive into that and find out. But um, so after I, I talked with Ken for a while, um, I told him, I said, would you ever be interested in selling this? And uh, he said, no, not at all. I've had this airplane for since 1993, and he's like, multiple people ask me for it all the time, and I'm just not interested. And I said, okay. And I said, well, let me show you one of the one of the other airplanes I fly and work on. And you know, if you were ever give me a chance, I I would do my best, and and I feel very confident that we would be able to give it the retirement that this this other airplane I fly has. And I think that's what she deserves, and I think that's probably what you would like to see happen to it. I just need you to give me a chance. So we went back and forth for about a month or two, and finally he called me and said, all right, here's the deal. I'll sell you the airplane for $100,000. It comes with two spare engines, and uh, you've got one year to come up with the, the total balance of the airplane. You can put down whatever you want to put down on it as collateral, but if you don't have the money by this time a year from now, I keep the airplane and I keep your money. Wow, that's a hard so bargain. The, the race was on to uh, <laughs> the race was on to make it happen. So uh, we agreed to it, and I got a notarized letter uh, so that we both signed it and a witness signed it, and I was on my way. And um, so I went from putting twenty thousand dollars of my own money down to hold this airplane uh, to now what do I do? And uh, I. <laughs> went and started a 501c3 nonprofit in about three and a half months on my own. And uh, once I got approved by the IRS uh, that we were a legal 501c3 nonprofit, then it was time to do the fundraising. And uh, I got to admit, as much as I hate social media sometimes, um, we, via just Facebook alone, uh, raised the remaining $80,000 over the course of eight months and paid cash for the airplane. Wow, that is incredible! Yeah, like you said, putting putting social media to good use—that's uh, that's fantastic. I mean, social media really helped step in and help save the airplane. It it really did, and uh, like I said, I I wouldn't have been able to accomplish what we did without its help. And um, you know, it, it was a lot of people laughed at it and laughed at me and thought, "Who the who the hell's this guy?" And uh, you know, I just donated you know, hundreds of dollars to that's all brother in the CAF. Like, who are you? And, uh, that was a, that was a tough obstacle to overcome because I'm nobody. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, hard enough for an organization like the EAA or the CAF to try and fundraise money for their projects. And here comes no one asking for money <laughs> for an airplane that hasn't left the ground in 24 years. So I don't know. I, I just, thought that if I let the world see that I really meant what I said and I, I was a man of my word, that um, their money was going to go to good use. And, uh, you know, everybody always talks about online. You see people, they'll, they'll post a picture of a warbird that's a static display somewhere or it's rotting away in some graveyard and or, air, you know, air base or something or some museum. And you always hear the same thing. Oh, I wish somebody would do something. Oh, why can't that be saved? And then you finally get somebody that wants to do that and is trying their hardest to do that. And people are like, I'm not giving you my money. I don't even know who you are. But yet that's the same person who complains all the time that someone should save something. So, 
Yeah. So it was it was an uphill climb, and uh, we we made it work. So, and we finally bought the airplane, and now here we are, the the proud owners of a 501c3 and now a, a DC3 that no one knows anything about and uh, and hadn't flown in 24 years. Now we did have uh, a good friend of mine that's an IA come out, and we did a pre-buy inspection on it before we put any money down, and really kind of went through the airplane making sure it was worth investing in and is as pitiful as it looked on the outside structurally uh and it was it was really good still uh the state of ohio which had used the airplane as a corporate airplane all the way up until 1981 uh, sank a lot of money and time into uh making the airplane last and it was very evident when you started opening things up and looking inside that you know, they took the time to get everything prepped and painted, even even on internally the internal structures of the wings. Most of it had paint in it, and uh, there was hardly any corrosion uh, where where it was going to be an issue. So, you know, like I said, we felt really confident that hey, you know, the skeleton on this thing is really good. We we might have to do some cosmetic stuff and literally bring everything else back to life. But but what matters is still good. And if you want to do this. I think it's it's a needle in a haystack find. So we went ahead with it. And um, well, while, while we were trying to start phase two of the restoration project, which was raising the money to get the airplane flying again, uh, we were also working uh, with my one of my vice presidents of our organization, Tim Nelson, uh, with researching the, uh, the history of the airplane with the help of the uh, National Museum of the United States Air Force. So we sent them the serial number of the airplane, and they sent us back a, a nice envelope of, of material and records on the aircraft. And it turns out that the airplane was uh, with the 12th Air Force briefly in early 1942, uh, went to Bowling Field in Washington, D.C. as a VIP transport. And then uh, after only about a month or two, it was transferred up to uh, the Northeast Division of Air Transport Command or ferry command at that time, out of Prescow, Maine. And ironically, the airplane was used in some of the very first ferry flights to Ireland and England across the North Atlantic, uh, basically pioneering the routes that were used by everybody else to get over to England uh, and ferrying the aircraft to England during World War II for the 8th Air Force and, and all the supplies. But uh, the airplane was actually flown by pilots of American Airlines and Northeast Airlines um, under contract by Air Transport Command. And the airplane did this until about halfway to late 1942. And ironically, if you guys are familiar with Ernest Gann, uh, Island in the Sky, oh, absolutely. And Fate is the Hunter, uh, some of the most iconic books out there. Uh, Ernest Gann was in ATC and Prescott the same time the RC-53 was there. And I even talked to Ernie Gann's daughter. We were trying to get a hold of any of his logbooks to verify that he actually flew our airplane. And unfortunately, she explained to me that all of his logbooks were lost in a fire uh, back in the 50s or 60s at their, their uh, farm out in Seattle. So unfortunately, I have no way of ever proving that. But um, it's neat to think about him being in there at that time going across when he's writing those stories that we've all read, uh, he may have very well been sitting in our airplane when that happened. And that's really, really cool. That is really remarkable. And as I mean, certainly as Chris can attest to you far even better than I can, uh, you know, we have uh, Ernie Gann's little writing cottage 
uh, in our museum. And it's uh, you can peek in the window and see where he did a lot of his writing uh, out in the Pacific Northwest and tons and tons of artifacts in there. But, of course, absolutely tragic about the loss of those logs, what, uh, what stories they would have continued yeah. to tell. Well, like I said, I've, I've seen that uh, cottage before when I've been at Oshkosh going through your museum, and I always thought how, how neat it was that that man himself actually sat at that desk. It's uh, You guys have done a very nice job preserving that history. So kudos to you guys for, again, always doing an amazing job on, on telling aviation story. Oh, that, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, as one part of, uh, of a cool team in the museum, we, that really means a lot to hear, so thank you. Um, so, so where did did the aircraft continue to go to after this? Yeah. So the way the airplane is going to be painted, uh, when we're finished with it is, uh, basically how it looked in North Africa during world war II. And that's, that was the, the most important and biggest part of this airplane's service history. So in 1942, November, uh, the United States military was starting to, make its presence known and and they were planning for operations in north africa the british at that time were were really just getting their their butts handed to them by rommel and uh the u.s was needed to step in and help out and that's obviously where general george Patton got his claim to fame and and tunisia and north africa and moving across there but in november of 1942 uh, every available transport was needed to supply troops and personnel across the Atlantic to North Africa in preparation for this campaign. Our airplane was was one of those aircraft that was uh, basically shuttled down to Florida to West Palm Beach ATC and then flew across to uh, North Africa and was reassigned to the North African Division of Air Transport Command. And that's actually where the airplane spent uh, pretty much the entire war, was in the Mediterranean theater and and North Africa. So the airplane actually was heavily involved in, in flying supply and personnel missions uh, for Operation Torch, again, which was the invasion of North Africa. It helped push Rommel all the way back out of North Africa. And then uh, whenever we invaded Sicily, the aircraft was heavily involved in uh, the invasion of Sicily, again, with flying supplies and personnel in the Sicily and also uh, was used in evacuation of wounded soldiers back to Africa to medical bases. And again, um, some of the first ever Army Air Nurses were flown into combat in C-53s in North Africa. And they were with the 60th Troop Carrier Squadron, and they were also with ATC when they did that. Um, Again, there's pictures. I've got volumes of pictures with C-53s and these Army Air Nurses and every single picture, you cannot see the tail number on the airplanes. <laughs> and there's no, you know, there's there's nothing on the back of these photos saying what the serial number is or anything like that. Um, and then it just so happened that Tim Nelson one day was down in the U.S. archives in Washington, D.C. Um, he travels for work a lot. So whenever he gets an opportunity to go down there, he, he'll go up to the archives and sit there literally all day on his time. And just dig through boxes and boxes and boxes of folders and pictures and everything else. And lo and behold, a couple times he's he's found uh, pictures of uh, C-53. And sure enough, the the date and the time. And there's actually one that we have with the tail number on the airplane uh, that showed up. And uh, it was like, well, there it is, you know. And it's just 
it's really, really neat. Uh, like I said, we only have about, I think, one or two pictures or three maybe at the most of the actual airplane from World War II. But there's so many other different pictures out there, and it's just, you know, the picture matches where it was and what it was doing, but you just can't see the tail number. And it's like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> that could very well be it, but I have no way of verifying it. So, But uh, that's where the airplane stayed. And then the neatest part about that was there was the accident report that was given to us by the Air Force Museum in 1944 in uh, Casablanca, and Morocco, and uh, the airplane was involved in a landing accident where it uh, it blew its right main tire on landing, and the airplane went up on its nose and went off the runway, and uh, it just so happened in this accident report that it had the, the crew's name listed, all of them, and uh, the that mission that day, for whatever reason, is still marked classified by the U.S. Air Force. And it said it had one VIP British personnel on board, and it still will not, and we're still not allowed to know who that was. I've I've tried digging. My best guess is it was either Montgomery, probably because it was in North Africa, or or maybe a prime minister. But uh, yeah, to this day they won't they won't say who was on there, but it was a British personnel. But uh, like I said, we were able to get the crew's names, and I said, well, here's another part of the story. Let's see if we can. Let's see if we can find these guys. So we went on a mission trying to locate these guys. It took me and a couple other volunteers and members of the organization almost two and a half years. But we ended up finding all of the crew members of this airplane. And unfortunately, every single one of them has passed away. But um, we were able to get in touch with their families. And uh, we've talked to all of them and uh, have regular communication with them. They've sent us pictures of their, their dad with our airplane, which was amazing, and uh, artifacts that there were their uniforms and medals from, from North Africa in World War II. And um, as a matter of fact, when we flew the airplane into Franklin, Pennsylvania, which is now our where our hangar is and our home, uh, the radio operator, John Filatico, both of his sons, who are well into their 60s right now, uh, both of them were there with their wives watching their dad's airplane land. And that was the first time they had ever seen it other than in pictures as kids. Wow. That is too cool. Wow. That is just amazing. So uh, what was the airplane's uh, history after the war? What was its path from, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> Monty and Rommel and Tunisia uh, up to uh, the, the governor of the state of Ohio? Where was it between those times? Sure. So the airplane, at, when World War II ended in May of 45 uh, in the European theater, uh, the airplane was put on up for surplus and sale right on the spot in North Africa. And because it was a DC-3 technically in camouflage, uh, it made it very attractive for somebody wanting to start an airline. And that's exactly what happened. The airplane was purchased by um, Scandinavian Airlines oh. and uh, Danish. Actually, it was Danish Airlines first. And uh, they operated the airplane, and then when they merged and became Scandinavian Airlines, or SAS, uh, the airplane stayed with them until about 1951. Uh, the, it was called the Gorm Viking, G-O-R-M Viking, and it was one of their flagships uh, flying across Europe uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. And I actually have found quite a few photos of that airplane um, painted like that. And it was polished aluminum with the uh, the, the big dragon on the side, uh, wow. like the Viking ships. 
and uh, just a really attractive paint scheme. But um, yeah, it was put up for sale again in 1951, and it was purchased by a outfit out of Miami, Florida, that converted DC-3s into corporate DC-3s. And um, that's when the airplane basically lost all of its its key uh, DC-3 stock items and was converted with the big panorama windows on the side. And they installed a fiberglass radome with um, early, early radar, Put a took the Astrodome out and basically gutted the interior, uh, got rid of all of the, the original stuff and put in uh, a very lavish for the time uh, corporate interior with couches, a wet bar, uh, you name it, reclining chairs, um, just, you know, the best money could buy in the 1950s, the era of Mad Men, if you will. <laughs> and um, the, air, the airplane went up to um, Rock, Rockwell, Will & Foundry in New York and flew for them for two or three years as their corporate airplane. And then that's when it was purchased by the state of Ohio in 1961 as the uh, governor's airplane for the state of Ohio. And then that's where the airplane stayed for, again, the rest of its flying life until we've got it. So one of the neat things about that was being that the airplane was in Ohio, um, it was under the tenure of James Rhodes in the 1960s. And Governor Rhodes was a huge proponent um, of general aviation in the state of Ohio and was responsible for the opening up of more than 30 local county airports in Ohio during his um, run as governor. The airplane was used to cut the ribbon at every single one of those ceremonies for the opening of those airports. And um, I've been to a lot of those airports. Some of them have some really good breakfast places to fly in and get get breakfast. And one of them, uh, Carroll County, Ohio, has some of the best pies known to man. So if you're ever in the mood to fly somewhere to get a pie, uh, Carroll County has it. But it's just neat every time you go in there to know that our, our DC-3 was the first airplane ever to land there and cut the ribbon at the opening ceremony. And uh, the other neat thing is we actually have pictures of it and proof. Uh, John Glenn, when he came back from, from his famous mission, um, toured the state of Ohio with Governor Rhodes in our DC-3. So it's just when you think of the people that were around this airplane, who were on this airplane, who this airplane, I, I call it the Forrest Gump of DC-3s. It, it just was doing its job, and it, you know, it uh, completely altered our country's history and didn't even know it. It was just doing its job. But uh, yeah, that's kind of our our nickname for it is you know Old Forrest. You know, he just he's just there doing his thing and doesn't even know what he's doing, but. Yeah. But um, it really is remarkable. And to think that all of this was sitting, rotting away in a in a field in Ohio and, and was literally years away from being lost, all of it. Well, and I and I saw, you know, I follow you on Facebook. We've been friends on Facebook. I follow the, the, the project as well. And and, you know, the the quality of the work that you guys are doing on this thing. I I know as we're talking here in October that you you're uh, just putting some some olive drab and gray paint down on her. But uh, um, when you look at the interior work and the work that everybody's doing it, boy, it's just gorgeous. I mean, it's really high quality stuff that you guys are doing. Oh, thanks, Chris. Yeah, we. Uh... When we got the airplane out of Ohio, it took us two and a half years to get the airplane flyable. And, um, you know, again, it was a working airplane when it left Ohio, but by no means was it restored or cosmetically where we wanted it to be. Um, we took, 
like I said, two and a half years. We worked two to three days a week around the around the clock, around the year. You know, snow, rain, sun of the summer, doesn't matter. We were out there every week for two or three days a week for two and a half years straight working on this airplane to, to get it out. We actually changed the tires and brakes on that DC-3. It took us 14 hours to do both brakes and tires in the snow in February uh, with our truck's headlights on at night when it was dark out to see what we could do to finish the job. And um, it, it just it really gave us an appreciation for all the, the World War II Army Air Corps mechanics that would get these airplanes back uh, destroyed, basically, and literally had days to turn them around and make them fly again. And, uh, you know, we're kind of working in the same conditions. And I, I don't think there was an hour that went by every day that we were working that we just said, God, those guys were amazing. You know, that, that this is what they dealt with. This was their conditions. And we're going to go home and go back to our normal jobs. But these guys were out here for three, four years straight doing this nonstop. And I, I just it built an admiration for the mechanics in World War II more so. I think I think they get overlooked a lot. But those guys were miracle workers, and um, we just we flail in comparison to what they were doing. But again, we got the airplane out in two and a half years, and then uh, when we got back to Franklin, it was kind of disheartening. The airplane just flew in, uh, but literally two weeks after it got there, we completely dis- dismantled the whole airplane again, back down to nothing. And um, from that point on, we we started a ground up restoration on it and i mean everything came out of that airplane the wiring came out every fluid line was replaced uh my we replaced we took both wings off uh went thoroughly through the center wing and both outer wings for corrosion and anything that needed replaced and that's where i've got to thank uh preferred air parts out of kidron ohio and basler turbo conversions up there in oshkosh uh, because both of them were huge and instrumental in helping us, uh, providing us with technical information, and uh, allowing us to purchase the parts that we needed to essentially rebuild uh, the wings. Uh, we have two almost brand new wings on this airplane that we redid ourselves with the technical knowledge from both Preferred Air Parts and Basler. And uh, we we replaced, I can't tell you how many spar caps, ribs, stringers, sheet metal um i mean the wings themselves were almost a two-year project to take apart and then rebuild again but uh all of the wing slings and the jigs and um the rotisseries that we built um all that stuff was with the knowledge and help of those two companies and uh i they were available anytime we needed to call them for any any you know questions or anything like that and uh i can't stress how supportive both of them were to our efforts but, um, yeah, so everything else, though, you know, I always looked at That's All Brother as kind of the epitome of a C-47 restoration. And I was like, well, you know, those guys, Basler did it right when they built that airplane for them. And there was really no expense spared on making it as nice as it is. And unfortunately, I don't have the budget to work with that the CAF did, but Again, every penny that we have put into this airplane was a donation. We, we, we've raised all of the money for this restoration on our own, and uh, it really is a grassroots effort here. Uh, we have no real big backers, uh, no huge financial contributions. It's just a bunch of nobodies putting their collective effort together to make something happen. Uh, 
And that's exactly what we've done. And to date, we've raised almost about $500,000 that have gone into this airplane. But the difference is, is we've done all the work ourselves. And we've got a lot of retired A&P mechanics, a lot of active A&P mechanics. Uh, A lot of the guys that are working on the airplane have years and years of experience doing this stuff and sheet metal work. And then we have other guys that are in their 20s and 30s that are modern A&Ps with the airlines or corporate flight departments. And these guys are up there every weekend with us. And they are the most dedicated people you can imagine. But we all look at That's All Brother and we're like, that's what we're going for. We want it to be that or better. And there's there's no reason we can't. And everybody has different projects they work on. But you can see every time someone does something, the amount of pride and the amount of just personal satisfaction they get out of knowing that they put everything they had into that part of that airplane, which will be telling the story of those guys in World War II. And uh, there's a lot to be proud of, but we haven't spared a a detail and we haven't spared a a single uh, point of interest on the airplane. Everything is as accurate as we can make it and as as authentic as we can make it. That sounds uh, absolutely fantastic, Jason, an airplane we would very much look forward to seeing seeing in person. Um, Tell us about the name of the airplane. Yes, so... Uh, that with all the research that we did on the airplane during World War II, uh, it never had a name. It was just always, uh, you know, an Air Transport Command C-53. So all the markings that are going on the airplane are authentic to the airplane. That's uh, exactly how it looked in 1942, early 1943 in North Africa, with the exception of the nose art and the and the name. And I just always call the airplane my my baby. And uh, my uh, my significant other, uh, she jokes around. She's like, "Oh yeah, you're you're going to see your other baby, the the Beach City baby." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" And she's like, "Yeah, the Beach City baby." And I was like, "That I really like how that sounds." I was like, "That has one heck of a ring to it." And I said, "I think that's what we're going to call the airplane." And uh, so it just kind of talked it over with the guys, and I'm like, "What do you guys think of this?" And they're like, "Wow, I love that." And um, it just kind of stuck. So we ended up looking, went looking for a uh, pinup that uh, we could find. And I did find one from a 1942 Esquire magazine of this this girl that was wearing a red bathing suit and was kind of in the lounge back position. And I was like, that's that's going to be it. But we got to change the uh, the colors from red to yellow because you know the the, the yellow kind of fit the overall scheme with the torch markings. And uh, so that's what we did. And then about a year into the project, uh, I was contacted by Chad Hill, who's done a lot of Warbird uh, pinups and art on different Warbirds and stuff, and just does a phenomenal job. And he said, like, I don't want you to get in trouble with copyright stuff. He said, why don't you let me redo the pinup? I'm going to keep it the same layout, about the same, but I'll come up with the, uh, the font and the, the pinup. And he said, why don't I use your your fiance as the subject matter of the of the nose art he goes i'm gonna make it look like her i was like okay that, that's awesome so he literally took a picture of of uh emily and used her face on the face of the pinup but basically came up with our own nose art where she's wearing a crush cap and has the leather flying jacket over her shoulder with the yellow bathing suit and then the beach city baby in cursive 
and that's that's the story of how the airplane got its name. Wow, that's awesome. Chad Hill's a, a good friend and amazing artist as well. So he'll, I know he's doing you right. <laughs> yeah, he's really supportive of the project, and uh, you know, we've prior to this year, obviously, this year has been one for the record books, but. Uh, the last three years, even though we didn't have an airplane, uh, we would average going to about six or eight air shows a year with our, our booth and kind of promoting our restoration and what we're doing. And we have some World War II vehicles that we've restored as well. Some of our members have restored. And we had them on display with all of our merchandise and T-shirts. And uh, Emily, being the good sport that she is, uh, literally dressed up like the pinup on the airplane. And uh, I told her it was the best thing in the world because every – Every man at the air show, there was a line of people just to see her and get their picture with her. But, uh, you know, she's, she's a smart cookie, too. So she said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take a picture, but we need a donation of $20 to put towards the airplane, and you can take whatever picture you want. So that money jar filled up every air show we went to with, with her sitting on the hood of the Jeep. So it was it was good. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, Jason, uh, looking at the clock, I can see we are getting up against it. But, uh, boy, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today. Tell us this fascinating story about this airplane. It really resonated with me when you called it the sort of the Forrest Gump of C-53s in that, uh, you know, the airplane doesn't have to be, with all due respect to our our dear friends at CAF and their amazing airplane, the airplane doesn't have to be the the first airplane over the beaches on D-Day or anything to have a story. They all have a story and uh uh and as as more time passes any of the airplanes that are left from that era uh whatever wherever they served or whatever they did they have a story and yours is uh, is varied and fascinating so kudos to you for the good work you're doing well thank you guys very much for having me and uh it was an honor but you're you're absolutely right every one of these airplanes has a story and they're veterans that flew them and worked on the men and women. Their stories are just as important as everybody else's, and they deserve to be told just as much, and that's what we're trying to do. Well, here, here, and uh, and more power to you. So with that, Jason, thank you once again for joining us. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks, as always, for the uh, terrific reviews we see on iTunes and elsewhere uh, that uh, podcasts are distributed and, uh, and commented on. You can always uh, leave a review there on iTunes or other places uh, where you get your podcasts. You can send us email to feedback at eaa.org. Or if you go to inspired.ea.org, every one of these episodes uh, has its own sort of uh, blog entry page. And there's a comments box there. You can also uh, chime in and let let us know what you thought. So please keep that feedback coming. Without your good comments and support, we couldn't be able to continue doing these. And uh, thank you all of you, excuse me, thanks again to all of you for listening, as always. And we'll catch up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.